Hey, everybody, and welcome to the No Pants Required podcast. I'm your host, Jen Mann, and today I'm wearing shorts. It is going to be 70 degrees today, I think, so I'm going to wear shorts today. I don't care. Sure, we're going to get snow next week, but today it's warm and I'm embracing the sun. So, yeah, shorts. I don't know if I'm going to leave the house, though, but we'll see. Anywho. My guest for today is Annie Serino. When she's not expressing her imagination with pen and paintbrush, Annie gardens, swims, and haunts art museums. In possession of a well-worn passport and memories of all the places she's called home, she shares her life with her husband and two sons. Mildly, okay, seriously, obsessed with birds, Celtic music, and all things Australian, she believes there is no such thing as a former librarian. No time to read or too many shoes. Also, quick side note, this podcast episode was recorded quite a while ago, and we talk about midlife bites, and we talk about that it is an upcoming book, and I just want to give you a heads up that the book is out. The book is here. So if you want to get a copy of Midlife Bites, it is now available everywhere books are sold or at the library. Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Pants Required. Today, (laughs) I have... Annie, and I should have asked you how to pronounce your last name, Annie Serino? Serino, yes. Yes, I got it. So I have Annie Serino, and Annie Serino is a novelist, and we share an agent, Erin Numata. Erin recommended that I have Annie on because she writes really funny, cute, would you call them rom-coms? Is that, do we call them that anymore? Is that okay? Yes, rom-com. Rom-coms. And you're getting ready to publish your second one. The second one's coming out from Grand Central. It's Blame It on the Brontes. Yes. Can you tell us about that book a little bit? Okay. Well, first, can I talk about you briefly? (laughs) Because I want to talk about your books because I, especially the one about Christmas, the the Yuletide. (laughs) I mean, I hope I didn't put you a little bit off, off, off balance there, but what I loved about it, you're kind of like Irma Bombic with an edge. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes. And and also kind of an ethnographer, I think, of modern life and life in suburbia. And the reason that resonated with me is because I was an anthropology major. And at the time, you know, anthropology is that doesn't exactly prepare you for a life in investment banking. So, you know, it's like, what worth has it had? And, and it has, to me, tremendous, it has, as it turned out, tremendous worth. So when I was reading your book, I was thinking about how we are still we still engage in rituals and customs. The whole thing about your mom with the decorations and the ornaments, it was like, I remember learning about a tribe where they would collect, as the whoever could collect the biggest pile of yams outside their, their tent or their, or their hut, that was like the biggest sign of your of your worth in the tribe. And they could be rotting yams. You know, it could be, you know, it didn't matter if they were worthless to eat as long as you were showing that you were demonstrating. So when I was reading about your mom and the Christmas ornaments, I was thinking, they're yams. And so what I want to say is, and, and I think to some extent, that kind of context, I always bring a context to my writing and to my thought before I write a book. I, I, I think... We have a very rich culture, and I've, I've, I'm very in tune with it, and I bring a lot of cultural references to my books, and it's always delightful to me that people get it. You know, even yeah. generations that are removed from, you know, from from the generation I came from. So anyway, I just want to thank you for your books. I was so glad Erin put me in touch with you. 
I love it. It's hysterical. But you are an ethnographer. You are. You know what, Annie? I like you because that makes me sound smart. Like, I'm like, an an anthropologist told me that. Yes. Because, you know, because I always feel like I'm just writing a bunch of dumb stuff that doesn't really mean a whole lot. So that, thank you. Well, you know. I have a lot of yams. You've got a lot of, you got to have a lot of yams, girl. But, you know, and, but you see also to some extent, that's the culture working subconsciously on you. I mean, you're making these observations because obviously we, we none of us live in a vacuum. We live in a culture. And, and this is a, this is one of, 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 you know, consumerism. And, you know, we just, yeah, I was thinking all those things when I was reading your book. So you should know that. <laughs> it was, awesome. it was, and it's very hard to be funny. It's very hard to be funny when you're talking about things that are are that are serious and that are a little sad too, uh-huh. you know. And 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 I love that kind of humor. I'm not sure I quite achieve that. I think that that thing where you're between tragedy and comedy is done exquisitely by Phoebe Waller Bridge. Yeah, I'm going to bring you another cultural reference here. But Fleabag, I mean, Fleabag me is brilliant. It is absolute genius. So you know, these are the things I I I I just I. The fact that I keep and write these books with my humor and just feel like maybe they're in some way contributing to this great cultural conversation to me is like such a such a wonderful experience. So anyway, I'm a happy camper and I am full of toxic positivity. <laughs> I, 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 you, you made that comment with Jen Lancaster and I thought that was so hysterical. But I am not. This is not toxic positivity. <laughs> no, it's, it, it's absolutely not because it's all based on energy and it's based on sort of like how people are, you know, like I can yes. feel your authenticity coming through. And so then it's not toxic. Like this is just who I am. It's toxic when it's like phony yes. and fake yes. and sort or of just like. Competitive or competitive. Yes. Like I'm happier than you or I have. A, yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yes, that's absolutely. where it gets kind of toxic. I had a real hard time sort of explaining humble bragging to, to I remember I wrote about humble bragging at one point. And my editor was like, well, like, what's a humble brag versus a brag? And I'm like, a brag, you just own it. And I think that's, yeah. you know, I yeah. said a humble brag. It's like, you're trying not to be very braggy, but you just want everyone to know that you got this. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, like, and I oh, think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like and people I think have toxic- gone to Harvard. chance to mention that they've gone to Harvard within the conversation. I mean, within 15 minutes, you know, they went to Harvard or they lived in Cambridge or something like that. So, yeah. Right. It's just, but, you know, that's I, okay. We're all proud of our, of our achievements. So We are, I and I think you should be. Brag. Yeah, like you should be proud, but, like, it's a matter of sort of how you phrase it. And so it's the authenticity that has to come through. And so with your yeah. enthusiasm, like I can, no, this is not toxic positivity. This is just Annie being okay. Annie. <laughs> <laughs> and I want you to know I brought a fly swatter <laughs> as a prop. Oh, are you going to hit swatter. somebody with it? Well, no, let me just tell you, just before we go on any further, the reason I have this is because the last dying flies of summer have been making their way into the house. I mean, they're desperate. They're not going gently into that good night. I mean, they're really, mm-hmm. so I didn't want us to be disturbed by any flies. So if you see a sudden, <laughs> a sudden flash, <laughs> it's me and my fly swatter. And it's such a suburban, such a suburban prop. Anyway, just, oh. I just want to tell you that before we really, really got started because I, well, I heard, okay. So let's fly. thank you. I really I appreciate that. You've got to pull me in here. <laughs> We don't want any buzzing flies. We don't want anything like that. So here's the thing. So I'm looking at your bio here and you've already brought it up that you, you have a degree in anthropology, Yeah. but then you went on to be a librarian and then it sounds like you did something on wall street too. Is that what I just heard you say? 
Oh, no. 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 Did I miss no. that up? Okay. I heard like investment banking or something, but maybe you were oh, just- well, I was just, what did I say? I, that's something, I said something about investment banking, but only because- Gosh, I already lost that train of thought. I don't know. That's why okay. I said. That's we okay. Went- I just, I just thought it's not here in my bio, and I'd like to know more about that. Like, how does one go? So you went from anthropology into library. Yes. Then you did that for how many years? You think before you started um, writing? When did you start writing? Oh, oh, there's a big, there's a big gap. <laughs> okay. Well, let me tell you about my what my perspective is on on things because. I have a chance to tell you, but I think the life, life is like in three major stages. There's like one to 30 Mm -hmm. when you're, you know, you're allowed, you're just finding your way. You're figuring out who you are. You're allowed to be a moron. You can get away with it. Then there's 30 to 60 when you're really in the think of it. You know, you're raising children, you're establishing your career, you're getting your first health, your first health scare, you know, all those lovely things. You're driving a lot in your van. And then you go into the third phase, which is 60 to 90. If you are lucky to live that long, but it's like this great, it's like, it's this, this great time. You kind of, you, you look up, you, you look around yourself again, you're, you're catching your breath here. You're, 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 uh, you're rethinking everything. And which I think the pandemic, for instance, has done a lot to a lot of people, but this is a phase of your life. Basically I'm in the pandemic phase of my life. <laughs> That's what I'm right. <laughs> Where, um, where, you know, you're reevaluating and you, and you feel a certain freedom because you've raised your kids, you've established your career. And um, it was around that time, the, what the point I'm trying to get to circuitously is it was around that time that I seriously began to think, you know, what's, what's my next, what am I doing next in life after raising kids and all that fun stuff? And I got another master's in, in literature. I, the stories in my head, I, I, I don't know, you might hear this from a lot of readers, uh, writers, excuse me, and readers too, but writers, they walk around with stories in their head. I mean, I've done this since I was a child. And basically, they had reached critical mass by the time, you know, I came up for air after raising children and, and career and all that. And I thought, oh, God, I'll offload this or I'm going to explode. So that is really, I came to writing rather late. I mean, I've been a reader since I was four. It's the one, I was a late bloomer in mm-hmm. everything. Except I was a precocious reader, but so and that sustained me in everything in life. That's like my deepest reference when I try to understand life or people. It's I go to books and they they are a source of solace and consolation and and understanding. So anyway, so I I wanted to get my own stories out there and to write. And you might say, you know, did you have a plan? I I have to say. I never really, I don't know if you wanted to know this, but I'll tell it anyway. I never really had like this overarching plan for my life. I mean, whenever I was in a phase like motherhood, career, student, within that phase, I was very focused and organized and I would have a plan. But I never had like this big thing of like what I wanted to be when I grow up or who I should be. I was just sort of, you know, fits and starts and mumbling along and zigzagging. And, you know, and I think it was, I had to think about that because you did ask, about the origin story. And I thought, you know, why didn't you have a plan, Annie? Why, what the, you know, what the heck? So I, I, you know, I grew up, one of my first memories as, as a student is it was obviously the generation where you hid under your desk because of the threat of nuclear bomb. And even then I was like six, first grade, sec, second grade. And I'm thinking, this doesn't make sense. I mean, I'm not good. this desk is not going to save me. And then I grew up. <laughs> I grew up in the 60s, which is a very tumultuous time. I still remember it was so vivid. And then there were the hippies. So there's like this this flower power and this absurdity of hiding under your desk. 
because a nuclear bomb could get you any time. And I, and I, I think that that's why I didn't have an overarching plan, or at least that's my story. <laughs> that's my story, and I'm sticking by it. So anyway, I never really had yeah. an overarching plan for my life. I mean, life is absurd. Life is funny. Life is sad. And I was I'm going along enjoying it very much. But like I said, I had to offload these stories. So it has to be love stories. I mean, because... I think some people say a mystery is at the heart of most stories. And I think that's probably true. But I also think at the heart of most stories is a love story. And so, of course, I'm going to write romance. I mean, my stories always framed themselves within the context of, 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 of a love story. And even, you know, even to some extent, women's fiction is a love story. It's love between families, you know. But I liked the male, female, the couples and, and, the, and the, the, the things they have to go through to get their happy ending. Mm-hmm. So I started to do that. And was writing, of course, and having not a clue <laughs> how to do this or, or, or what, you know, and I would go and go back to my favorite, you know, romance and see just how they did it and approached it with a plan. I mean, I had a very, a very, very structured plan. Now, do you need to ask me any questions? Am I talking too fast or too much here? You're doing great. Keep going. I'm just okay. listening. No, you're fine. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> so then I wrote the first book, Helen of Troy, Illinois, and I did try to get an agent. And I got a lot of full requests. I even had a revision and a, you know, a revise and resubmit, but it never really went anywhere. And I thought, you know, let's just get this show on the road. And so I did apply to, I, I submitted the manuscript to uh, publishers that did not require an agent. Uh-huh. And I found, uh, and I found Burroughs Publishing House and they, uh, you know, and I got the book published and it was an incredible learning curve because I was coming in again no social media experience. I created my own website. I got on Facebook. I got, I mean, this is, you take it for granted, but this was a big deal for me to go how, from- How old were the, you at this point? Like, how old are you? What are we talking? I was 16 when I started submitting the manuscript and it was published when I was 62. 60. And okay. 60, yes. I mean, we're talking a lot. I was smelling a lot of roses and reading a lot of books. <laughs> so, That's but amazing I had Pardon me? But I think that's amazing because I think so many people think, oh, I know I thought that, that I thought if I don't have a published book by the time I'm 30, I'm, I'm, it's not going to happen for me. This and is I was I'm here well over 30. Well, and I think if you're listening to this and you are sitting on a book and you are 60, 70 oh, even, like, oh, do it, girl. What are you oh, waiting absolutely. for? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, there's, I just read, there was an article in The Guardian, which is the, the British paper, and there was a woman named Anne Youngman, or Anne Youngson, I think she is, and she published her first novel, like, when she was 72, and went on in, in England. She's won all these awards or whatever, and, and, and got, you know, has published even more, and she said even she was astounded. She thought the age would be a problem, but if there's a good story, there's a good story, and I have to say yeah. that because I don't have the distractions of of raising children and all that, you are so productive. I'm so productive. I mean, I think generally <laughs> I you really are. I mean, you don't have the distractions. Yeah. You read a dream. I mean, I, I, I love it. And it became a very productive time for me. And I think that that's what this woman was also expressing that, you know, wow. And she got to tell her stories at 72. Yeah. There's a famous quote and I think everybody needs to hear it. And if they don't know it already, and apparently it's 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 said that George Eliot said this, but I'm not absolutely certain. But uh, she said, and I wrote it down so I could get it right. It's never too late to be what you might have been. Yes. It's yes. It never That's awesome. I mean, That's I might amazing. decide. Yeah, I mean, I might decide when I'm 80 to be, you know, 
don't know. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Who knows? Who I knows? <laughs> but the possibilities are endless. And I think that that's, and, and, you know, so, so, but it was just so exciting to, and you were trying to get back to the Helen of Troy, the Illinois book. So, well, I am, I just want to know. So, you know, it's like you're 60, you published this book with your Burroughs. Now you got to learn social media. How did you learn yeah. all that stuff? Did your oh, kids help you or trial and error and a lot of error? I mean, basically <laughs> diving into the deep end, diving into the deep end and, and and just deciding, you know, hey, I'm taking this on. And moments of absolute terror. I mean, I had some terror before I came. I was terrified <laughs> before I came on this podcast. You might not realize that because of how, how much I'm talking, but you know, those 15 minutes when it's you staring to that little screen and you're trying to make sure your hair's right and you know the glow I had to change glasses about three times. So basically I live in a constant state of terror because okay. everything is new. Everything is new. I mean I'm learning all the time. All the time. And I love that. There is no comfort zone and I've created a website and, you know, and I'm not the the sharpest tool in the shed when it comes to, you know, media, I mean, to computer language or anything. And I I feel good about that. So basically it's, it's just out of the comfort zone and, and knowing, you know, again, another anthropological concept that I'm able to adapt and to, to go with the flow and be out of my you know, just what's what I have in my notes here. What well, that's I what I was going to ask you, because it sounds like, you know, you say you live in a constant state of terror, but yes, yet you I mean, don't. Sort of funny, but not really. <laughs> but not really. I mean, and I think that you don't let that fear hold you back, though. Like, you know, some people, when they have that, that constant state of terror, they curl up into a ball and they just don't do anything. Where you, but you just said it, you go with the flow, like you figure out and you persevere and you learn and adapt. And I think that is, that's a unique thing. Would you say, I don't know many people that let, you know, if they have that much fear to try something new, they don't do it, but you just keep pushing through. Well, it was very important to me. It was Mm -hmm. something I really, you know, how you always have to have stakes. You have to establish stakes in a book, you Mm -hmm. know, like the stakes have to be worth it. This was really worth it to me. These the stakes were very high for me. And I don't want to give the impression that I'm without fear. You have never seen a more, I am like a white knuckle car driver. I hate to drive. I didn't learn to drive till I was in my thirties because I grew up in cities. And I, to this day, am terrified. Well, another I'm terrified of driving. And that's a fear I haven't quite conquered. conquered. So I'm not, this, I'm not all that brave, but that the writing and sharing my stories and being part of this community of people who are sharing their stories, those were stakes that I that I that I really felt invested in that I really wanted to be part of. So I, this was going to happen by hook or by crook. So right. I'm so grateful and very surprised, but very very grateful that it happened. Because once Helen of Troy, Illinois, came out and you learned social media, then were you able to? Were you at some point you you landed an agent? How did that come about? Okay. Yeah. So Helen of Troy, Illinois was published in 2017 uh-huh. and I had another rom-com up and I just, I just, I had other books I'd written, but I didn't think I had had enough experience with, with getting rejected by agents. And if I ever never see the word, unfortunately, again, in my life, I will be, <laughs> you know how they always say that, yeah. unfortunately, or it's subjective. I mean, I understand. Right. I understand why they do and say this that. It didn't but, resonate but, with me. Yeah, good luck. Yeah, yeah, good luck. And to somebody else, you'll find a home and, you know, your manuscript's going to find a home. So anyway, I have my share of rejections and manuscripts that I, and so I got a little smarter about picking, you know, I did have other manuscripts in in my, in, you know, in my, 
in my done completed because I, I, you know, I was writing a lot. And, and, and I thought, and I started to be very objective about it, realizing this agents are not going to want this. I, I was getting a feeling for, you know, what they were getting to like and, and the criticism they would make with the rejection of Helen of Troy, Illinois. So I had written Blame It on the Brontes and I just felt, I thought, this is it. This is the one. This is the one that might strike a chord. It's it's funny. I think it's funny. Apparently, it was funny. I mean, that's they that's what I've been told. And uh, it just it just it, everything came together with it in it for me. It was my love of literature, humor, romance. Just it just again. I thought this is the one I'm going to pitch. So this was around seventeen. This would have been around 2018. I, I was pitching it and rewriting it constantly, of course, and was getting rejections, but a lot more fulls, a lot more interest, little partials and fulls. And thinking, oh, okay, this is good. This is good. And then I got the partial request from Folio uh, Literary mm-hmm. Management, where Erin Numata and uh, I should also mention I do have two agents. I have uh, Rachel Ekstrom also. Okay. My two agents, and and so and they were they asked for the partial, and then they. You know, and then there's like, then they wanted the full. And I'm thinking, oh, this is, this is good. And I was excited about the agency because of their tremendous track record. They have an established, you know, I mean, they've been around for a long time. And Erin has her, she's a pro- pro- professional. I mean, she's been doing everything in the publishing industry for, for a long time. And I just felt so confident with them. And when I was getting this great feedback from them, I thought, oh my God, you know, people talk about dream agent and well, we'll go into that later, but it was the perfect fit for me. So I was just so excited. And then I get this call. It was in October of 2019 and it, and it was, it was Erin and she was, she, we, the call, the cause they call it, the, you know, the famous <laughs> offer of, offer of uh, representation. She was calling from Inverness, Scotland. As you know, she lives in England. Yeah. So we were having a three-way call with her, with with me, Rachel, and Erin, and she was in uh, Inverness, Scotland. And I just it couldn't get any better than that. I mean, it's just like all this great stuff coming together, and 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 there it was, and there I was, and then uh-huh. and then it, I didn't even hesitate. I mean, I had a few others. There was a, other agencies that were interested, but I just I didn't even hesitate with Folio, and. And then it was just, then they put me through, they, they had their readers, they had their literary assistant reading the manuscript. It was a constant state of revision. And finally, Aaron said, you know what? It's ready. Let's, let's submit it. They submitted it last, uh, August of 2020 mm-hmm. and it sold within two weeks. Oh my goodness. So, yeah. And now so, it'll be out in May of 2022. It yes, it will. And then you've also got another one you're working on. Well, it's done. It'll be published in 2023. Something about a modern day take on Little Women. Yes. What's that one called? No, go ahead. Ed, do you have a question? I'm sorry. Yeah, I wanted to know if that... You're fine. You're fine. You have a lot of enthusiasm. I love it. Sometimes the very first radio interview I did, I answered in one word sentences and the host kept doing this like longer, longer. So no, this is great. I I love that you're so enthusiastic. Okay, we, well, I do have to, when you said the word enthusiasm, and I, I just had, I didn't know if you were going to ask me things like how how uh, someone from my generation looks on, you know, how we're regarding the generations coming up behind us. And I have to say, what's the deal with exclamation points? I mean, you're talking about enthusiasm. I mean, I use them all the time because I don't want to make sure, I want to make sure I'm conveying the proper enthusiasm. Right. But, you know, I do me, Adam is bold enough. And, you know, so, so, yeah, I have a lot of enthusiasm and I realize, you know, 
but so I, that's, that's one of those adjustments I've had to make apart from social media is I have to use exclamation points and so much. And yeah. I like it. It's like, you know, anyway, that was a little tangential, but I do have the enthusiasm. What were you going to say about? Well, I just okay. feel like I do with the exclamation points. I'm yeah. sort of, I'm very kind of like terse. I feel like sometimes in, and oh. And so I do exclamation points to let them know that like, I'm excited. I'm not mad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I took the cue. I took the cue from, you know, from the emails I was getting. And I thought, oh, you know, just make sure they know that you, you know, because I tend to be very formal and I, and I'm, I'm you know, it, you know, very careful and crafted letters. And, but I started using exclamation points because I don't want them to think that I'm not enthusiastic. So I'm right. glad I'm conveying it. You know, there's a big exclamation point above my head right now. So. <laughs> No, it's just, I think the thing is too, I mean, what I love is like, I have teenagers and, you know, if I use p- proper punctuation, when I text them, they get offended. And I'm like, I'm not going to text you in all lower cases. I'm just not. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm going to use oh, periods. Oh, they feel like periods are aggressive. Or, oh, I don't know. Yes. <laughs> but, um, well, you know, I've been, I was shamed once by a millennial. I adore millennials. I rate, I have millennials. They're my kids. But I, I was shamed once by the fact that I use Hotmail and not Gmail. I mean, it was like a marker, you know, it was like the scarlet letter, you know, you are, you are, you are out of date lady. I'm thinking what they say to AOL.com people. I mean, Oh yeah, no, they're the worst. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm one step away from the AOL.com people. I I have a Yahoo account that I've had for, I don't know, since Yahoo came into existence. So in the nineties or something, I think I got this Yahoo account and now I just use it for spam. And so it's like, whenever I go to a a store at the mall and they ask me for my email address, you know, that's the the email address I give them because I never really look at it. And a few years ago, I was in hot topic with my teenage daughter and they asked me for my email address and I gave it to them. And I was like, and I said at yahoo.com and she stopped and looked up from the keyboard. She goes, that's a thing. (laughs) (laughs) Have you put this in a book? No, not yet. (laughs) Well, actually, and then Erin did tell me about, you have a new book out called Midlife Bites. I do. Well, it's not yet. It'll be out in January. It's coming. I know, but is it about this kind of thing? Is it about generations and... No, it's really about, I'm, I'm still working on my elevator pitch, Annie. I don't know what it's about yet. It's, it's a detour. Oh, they don't call them elevator pitches anymore, do they? Oh, I mean, I'm probably elevators. No, it's a you Zoom. You want to be on an elevator. No, it's probably a Zoom pitch or something. I don't know what they call it now. But no, I, um, you know, as as someone who observes society and rituals, now that I know that yes. that's what I do, I just was sort of the natural progression from people I want to punch in the throat. I had written a lot about my <laughs> my kids and my life and raising yeah. kids. But a few years ago, I woke up and thought, oh my God, my life is literally half over. And what have I done? You know, sort of how you were talking at the beginning about the stages of life. Like, sure. you know, yeah. I'm yeah. kind of You're moving still 10 into- years away. You're still 10 years away from this glorious time. <laughs> yeah, but I feel it coming, you know, and I'm just sort of like, oh, yes. that next stage is coming. And what have I done? Yeah. And what's going on with me? And what's happening yes. to me? And so yes. it's a lot of, it's just, I don't know. It's just sort of all, I keep saying I had a midlife crisis and it's my midlife crisis book. And 
Yeah. Well, you're in the worst. I, I don't want to say worst, but 30 to 30 to 60 is the toughest time. I mean, and you do have these thoughts and you are facing and, and, and whether or not you have an overarching plan or not, you know, you do think about what what is my next move and, you know, what happens next? And yeah. good for you. I mean, you're thoughtful. And uh, well, I don't know about that, but I just I definitely don't have a plan. And I think that was part of what was so <laughs> terrifying was waking up one morning and realizing, like, I have no plan. Like, what am well, I doing? Are you, are you a person that generally has an overarching plan? I mean, the one yeah. that I said I do not did not have. And I am no. such a pantser. In fact, that was a question I had here for you. I mean, I want to because it sounds like so you say you don't have a plan for your life, but it, you definitely have plans for your books. Like you Absolutely. are definitely, you know, Absolutely. yes. Yes, yes. And so I think in certain situations I have plans. I think like I always know like what what I'm doing next and how I'm gonna get there and publishing wise and business wise and that kind of thing. But as for my life, no, I have no plan. (laughs) I'm just going with the flow. (laughs) It all works out well. That's fine. Yeah. But I I I don't know. I mean I also want to ask you about your books because I feel like your books, you're definitely inspired by sort of the classics, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I, I, it's in my, it's just in my, everything I do it. If literature informs everything. I mean, it's just, I remember, in fact, when you had this origin, you, you called it the origin stereotype, which again is a very ethnographic question, by the way. <laughs> you're an ethnographer, ethnographic. Mm-hmm. I meant. Did, what did I just say? Eth, eth, did I say ethnographic? Or anyway, what I meant was that you think about, you know, people, you know, where we're all coming from. And my first thought was the first chapter of David Copperfield, where it's called I Am Born. And I thought, oh, crikey, Annie, she doesn't want to hear your whole life story. And then I thought, why is David Copperfield the first thing you thought of? You know, and, and you know, on my frame of reference, my frame of reference, my God, I think I've even said this already, is is literature. And I think the 19th century, I'm, I'm, I'm biased. I, I, you know, obviously it was tremendously wonderful books in the 20th century. But I think the 19th century was the glorious age of novel of novels. And those long, you know, those long Russian novels and Charles Dickens, I mean, you really, you know, thousands of pages of, of books and you really, really get lost in them and, and you are truly tra- transported. And to me, that's just, I carry all that with me. I just, I just, it just makes my life, I just feel richer. And, and, and so I, I just naturally, it's, I, I naturally gravitated toward, toward having that be part of, 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 of my stories and how, how I, what makes me write. Now, also sometimes too, like when you say, and also where do writers get their ideas? And every time, were you going to ask that question where you get yeah. your idea? Go ahead. Yeah. Do it. <laughs> well, the first, and again, the first thing I thought of when you said that was, have you seen that movie, Young Frankenstein? It's the takeoff. It's a hysterical takeoff of the, of the Frankenstein. Novel. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Mel Brooks. Well, you remember the scene where Joe Boyle, who plays Frankenstein, he's like, he's clutching the air. He hears a violin and he's trying to grab the musical notes. Uh-huh. It's hysterical. And you know, that's what, that's what writing is. That's what stories are. You're basically, you're just, there's, there's things are out there and you're trying to grab them and express them. And there's those crazy musical notes in the air. And uh, so anyway, but to get, come around to, to what I'm saying. Yeah. So automatically I'm already bringing a lot of what I've read to, 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 to what I write because I can't help it. The second thing is I tend, to, I think, of rom- especially romance novels, I think they need to be about something besides the love story. And to me, the Helen of Troy thing became an issue of ethics. On um, And what started the story is that I was bothered by, this really disturbed me, Jen. This is the thing that, these are the things in life that disturbed me, but it bothered me that Helen of Troy got away with what she did. I mean, 
what she did or, you know, where her contribution to, you know, the face of lost Southmanship. She's, you know, in legend, the person who caused the, the, the Trojan War, 10 years of war. And then it's over. And she goes back to being Menelaus's wife, the Queen of Sparta. And life goes on. She has children. And I first thought, you know, that's just not right. <laughs> so the premise for my first book was that this modern day Helen, her, you know, she, she's basically paying karma, karma for she's, she's, giving the payback that Helen, the original Helen of Troy never, never paid. So her life is, she's a mess. And her life is basically payback. With Blame It on the Brontes, what happened, what it was, is I wanted it to be about a character who, who to some extent, like me, fictional characters are very alive. And she is non-compromising. I mean, she made a major life decision to leave the man she loved because he was not going to fulfill the dream they had together, which was sort of loosely based on, you know, Heathcliff and Catherine. I mean, in her mind, they were Heathcliff and Catherine in Wuthering Heights. And he betrays that, that thing. And she, she is uncompromising. She can't, she can't take that. And they break up and she, and, but then she's, this is like 10 years, like again, 10 years is like, you know, it's like, it's a, you know, I'm always thinking in terms of decades, mainly because when you write, it's easier to just subtract and add if it's something that was 10 years. But anyway, so 10 years later, she's in her early thirties and she's rethinking, you know, you know, her life and where she's headed. And was she right to not have compromised? And but the, the background of this is Catherine and Heathcliff's story. And, you know, how far do you carry, you know, an obsessive lover? You know, I mean, Catherine and Heathcliff are, you know, let's face it, you know, a little crazy. So, I was going to say, so, they're, a little, they're a little uncomfortable <laughs> to me. So. Little, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, if, you've, if you love the, the, the romance, I mean, who doesn't love the, 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 the obsessive love of Catherine and, 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 and Heathcliff and, you know, Wuthering Heights, my God, I've read the book like 6 million times. So, and then I thought, so then I got to thinking, okay, so this is my character, Athena's problem. She's, she's, she's at a crossroads between imagination and reality and how, you know, what, what steps is she going to take much and how much she has given up and lost and, and for not compromising and for, you know, and, and so, and I love just, Parenthetically, I love writing about characters who already have a history together. I, I find that a little more believable than, you know, instant fall in love and within two months, they're a couple. I, I, I personally have a problem with that. So anyway, so that was that was the problem. The Helen of Troy was the whole karma issue. And this one is, is like, you know, where are the limits of, of imagination, the power and the limits of imagination and how you know, what do we do with that in our life? And how do we, what is our responsibility? And then I thought, we well, you know, girl, you're writing romance novels and you're promising people happily ever after. And that's a responsibility. You know, I do take these things seriously. Not a whole lot of things I take seriously, but I take that seriously. But there are, there are rules. There are rules. Like if you don't yeah. give the, your reader a happily ever after, yeah. they're not, they're not, it's and not romance. Are, <laughs> I know, I know. So I, and I thought, you know, am I selling? I mean, we, do I have right to sell people this, to continue to perpetuate this fairy tale ending? And mm. I thought, hell yeah. <laughs> hell yeah. <laughs> I mean, for one thing, we all want it. We all need it. We do. And I mean, for God's sake. And, and, and when you're reading a book and you want to feel a certain comfort in, in knowing that, okay, and, and going through their trials and tribulations, but still knowing, okay, they're going to be okay at the end. I mean, I'm okay with that too. But I also think that happily ever after, I mean, that's, that's, you know, as long as I have my characters wrestling with, with the limits of what they expect in a relationship, it's not going to be wonderful. You're going to have days where, you know, he's going to be, you know, spitting in the sink because he's got sinus problems or what, I don't know, whatever. I don't know the little things of, you know, you know, that's the reality. 
And uh-huh. if you could still believe in love in the day-to-day grind of, you know, cleaning the kitchen and doing laundry and all that other stuff. And if you could still match the reality with your imaginative dreams and I needed to justify, you know, why, you know, do you have a right to create, you know, to, to perpetuate the, the idea or the fantasy sometimes of happy ever after. And I just think that it's a goal and imagination and with that wish, that wish for the happy ever after, I, I think it makes you a better, it makes you a better lover. It makes you a better partner because that's your goal. You want the happiness and you want to be together in that nice universe. <laughs> so, so, so can I ask you a personal question? Like, do sure. you have the happily ever after in your life right oh, now? Oh yeah. I mean, but- <laughs> well, because I think this goes back, but this goes back to like midlife bites and what I'm, you know, and I'm thinking that as a woman who is a little bit further down the path, you know, yeah. you can give hope to some of us because we are at that point now. <laughs> like I'm looking at my husband and I'm like, has he always chewed like that? Is that always, you know, when you said like oh, spitting into the- yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I read this you great know, book. I think it was, yeah, 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 yeah. Like oh, the yeah. spitting okay. into the sink or the scratching his ass, you know, and I'm just sort of like, oh, sure. I once, like I once loved, like I was once like excited about this guy. Like yeah, that's yeah. why a lot of us read romance because yes. we kind of miss that. But I would yes. love, I would love for you to write a book about, you know, and not the sappy like, oh, we've been together for forty years, and I still, you know, he still brings me a rose every day, and but no, like he spits yes. into oh, my yeah. sink, but I still yes. love him. Well, no, he doesn't. <laughs> well, the reason I thought of that is because I have a scene actually in Blame It on the Brontes. Now, that, like I said, they had had a, they had had a back history, they had had a backstory, they knew each other, they were in love in college, and then they broke up. And they were separated for, for for quite a bit, and then they do get back together at some point. And then I'll, I don't give too much away, but but she wakes up the next morning and he's like whistling opera in the off shower or, or or doing something. Oh well, no, I think he clears his nasal passage or something like that. And then you're right right back to that reality of you know okay all the all the romance and the that all the little birds singing and you know the the uh, you know the fulfillment of the imagination and there's yeah. reality staring you in the face. I mean, you're waking up, you've got morning breath, blah, 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 blah. So I do, I do kind of, I have her expressing that. And because she has come to the point in the novel where she's already beyond her, you know, fantasies and the imagination and Catherine and Heathcliff, I mean, let's face it, Heathcliff was a mess. I mean, he didn't exactly, I'm sure he was doing Heathcliff a lot. Heathcliff wasn't my favorite. <laughs> Mr. Darcy, I can get behind, but not Heathcliff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll get back to that. We'll get back to that. Yeah, so so no, I do I do that. I mean, and in fact, that was my that was my response to, you know, girl, this isn't all flowers and roses and pretty and it's it's not it's a happy ending, but it's a realistic one. They yeah. have to make compromises. She has to make a compromise in her career by the end. You know, she's got to put up with his love of opera. She hates opera. I mean, you know, this is reality and that and so I felt like I had achieved my justification for giving them the happy ending because it's, it is real. It is realistic, Mm -hmm. you know, and I was able to solve that problem for myself of, you know, you know, there's imagination and then there's real life and let's find a nice balance between the two. And to get back to your thing, and I could see why you would like Mr. Darcy and, you know, because it's so, you know, he's, he represents order. And, and, and in fact, I think this problem I was talking about between imagination and reason was addressed by Jane Austen. I mean, that's what she's about. You know, she mm-hmm. her titles Pride and Pride is Sense and Sensibility. She was always trying to find that balance between. Yeah. And she makes fun, I think, in the for her very first book or the one about uh, 
where the girl goes to the castle and she, she's, oh, for goodness sake, I can't even remember the title. But she goes to the castle and she has, and she's like really in, involved with gothic novels. And she, you know, mm-hmm. she's, she really believes all this scary stuff and her imagination runs away with her. And you know that Jane Austen was always reining in the the extremes of of imagination and and that's why Mr. Darcy is so is so appealing because he represents this order but he's got this beating heart and this this passionate love inside him so I totally agree with you about uh-huh. Mr. Darcy as a as the ultimate romantic hero well and I think it didn't it didn't hurt when uh, the BBC cast Colin first <laughs> Colin first that just kind of <laughs> At that point, it was like, you know, up until that point. It's over, girl. <laughs> yeah, like Mr. Darcy had been probably, you know, whatever boy I had a crush on at the time. And then when Colin Firth came on, I was like, oh, never mind. And to yeah. me, no no, Mr. Darcy has 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 met that level. Like, I've watched oh, all no. of the adaptations, and I'm like, nope, nope. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I think, too, it's funny you're saying this. I mean, you know, and women, too. I mean, we, you know, we have a responsibility to – not take it too far. I mean, not every guy's going to be Colin Firth or, or Mr. Darcy. I mean, you know, yeah. but I, I, I think that my attraction to the Heathcliff character, I mean, I adore Mr. Darcy, but there's something so raw and elemental that Bront, Emily Bronte does in that book that no one had quite done before. And that it just, it just resonates through the centuries. It is, it is, it's, you know, again, it's sort of anthropological. It is love stripped of yeah. society, of civilization. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are two raw, wild children, and I love that. And if, have you seen the Wuthering Heights version with R- Rafe Fiennes and Juliette Binoche? I have not. No, you must. You okay. must get, just stop this podcast right now. And go. <laughs> I gotta go. I gotta go. I gotta, <laughs> no, go. Jen, gotta go. Gotta go. I gotta go watch so that. It is. It is. It is to me. I mean, I, you've seen many adaptations of many of these of these classics, mm-hmm. and to me, it is. It's. It's spectacular. It was okay. true to book. True to the book, and many of the other ones didn't carry the story beyond the next generation of you know where he carries the revenge plan into the next generation, yeah. and this one does. I mean, it's the truest to the book hmm. I've ever seen. I'll so have to Rafe check that Fiennes. out. I think I'm pronouncing his name his name right. Yeah, it's Rafe, Rafe. Mm-hmm. Fiennes mm-hmm. and Juliet Binoche. Okay, and I, and it was, I think it was in the '90s, and you have yeah. you have to see it, Jen, and it okay. might make you feel like <laughs> So I know, what are you reading right now? What do you, what do you think are going to be the new classics? What do you think? What, are, what will people write about? Wonderful you know? question. Wonderful question. <laughs> well, The English Patient by Michael Ondaatje. Okay. Uh-huh. Just not only is it beautifully, beautifully written, but it has a part, and, and it's a love story. And it's a story about war. And it's a story about survival. But it's really a story about identity. It's a story about, again, we're getting back to anthropological themes. See, my degree was worth something. It ultimately, at the heart of the story is, who are we? I mean, what defines us? What's our identity? Are we defined by nations, tribes? And, you know, this is a very compelling issue and a, and a pertinent one. What, what, and, and there's this wonderful scene where his lover, Catherine, says she, it's her dying letter. And she talks about imagining a world of, 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 of just rivers and no boundaries and just like deserts with, with, no, with no definitions of culture that we are just people. We are just human beings living and loving together. And that notion and that large notion of, 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 of identity apart from culture and and to me, it's just so important and so beautifully rendered. And I think that the book will stand the test of time because it, it is about so much. It's about things, like I said, war, love, 
identity. The movie did a very good job, I thought, of of you know they had to focus on the love story because I think that the, the the political philosophy of the book is it doesn't lend itself to to screenplays. But the character of Kip, I got to get some water. I think that one's Ray Fiennes too, isn't it? Yes, yes, I think it is. And Juliette Binoche. And Juliette Binoche. Is it though, she or is it that, that she's in it too? Oh, yes, and Chris, Chris, uh, Chris, Kristen Scott Thomas. No, but that's what I was thinking. Kristen Scott Thomas. Yeah, yes, Juliette Binoche. I forgot that she plays Hannah, the nurse. Oh, yes, wow. Excuse me, I mm. Yeah, no, I, 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 that is a book I have never read. So now I think I'm going to have to read that one. You've just Get convinced this podcast me. Podcast right now. Go buy English Patient. No, but it's anyway, so much I, to I'm, do. I'm, I'm teasing you. And 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 if you wanted to, I I keep a list of books. I keep a list uh, that because people do ask me a lot about you know what do you recommend and, and I do have a list. Do you put that on your social media? Do you put your recommendations out on your social media? Um, no, no, but I do. I I'm on Goodreads and I, I yeah. You know, Cause I'm a, I I like to use social media. Like I always want to know like what everybody's reading and what I'm reading. You know, and I tell them what I'm reading, and it's kind of like oh, a little book club. Fun. It's kind of fun. <laughs> this is something I'm going to have to deal with. I mean, I I'm I'm still awkward with social media. I cut haven't quite gotten the hang of hashtags. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm kind of like I'm, and I'm going to have to uh, you know I'm going to have to come up fully up to speed when I have to publicize you know, blame it on the Bronte. So, oh, but I think let's, I didn't want to lose track. And you were talking about little women. Yeah. You know, the, was. the next book I'm writing about based on little women, I get this joy of getting to write a book. I sort of updating the story. There is, her name is Amy, the main character. And the, the male is Theo. And, you know, the original character's name was Theodore Lawrence. So, but the problem I, the thing that bothered me about that, that I had to work through, and this is why I wanted to write the book, is I, it always bothered me that Laurie had transferred his attention, his affection from Joe to Amy. So easily I, and quickly. You know, you know? And the other thing that always bothered me was Amy gets short shrift. I mean, people have always, they never forget the scene where she burned the manuscripts. I was going to say it. I was a little shocked because I feel like any adaptation is always Joe. Like no matter what, you're still, jo- Joe is still your main character. So I'm surprised you chose Amy because to me, Amy is the least likable. We don't like you know, Amy. No, girlfriend, go back and read that book. Go back and read that. That she did that as a child. It was one major. She I was little. Yeah. She was a little girl. I reread it because in anticipation of writing this novel, and if you really read closely, Amy has the biggest character arc, the, 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 the strongest character arc of anyone. She changes significantly. It becomes very important to her that she becomes a moral and good person. Mm-hmm. She chastises Laurie for being, you know, a lazy member. He goes, they right. need to put and she she really evolves. And of mm. course, we all love Joe. I mean, who wouldn't love yeah. Joe? Joe's spirited. She's the center of the story. But she doesn't really change all that much from who she was in the beginning. I mean, no, no. He is the writer. She's the aspiring. I'm trying to get out of the light here. She's the aspiring writer. Okay. But Amy's arc is is deeper and it's more okay. profound. And in fact, Louise May Alcott did base her character on her own sister, Amy, who, I mean, May, her name was May, but mm-hmm. she called it, you know, but she was the basis for Amy. Yeah. And she became an artist. Her sister, she went off to Europe. She became something of a success as an artist, married later in life, had a baby, and then she died. And uh, apparently Louisa May Alcott helped raise her daughter. I mean, became, oh. raised her daughter. So they had a, 
they had a similar relationship, I guess, that, that Joe and Amy. But I, 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 in fact, my editor, Alex Logan, at Grand Central, I think she initially challenged, well, why aren't we talking, why aren't we doing Joe? And I made a case for Amy. Amy was a, was, was a, was a very interesting character. She, she is very realistic about her chances of being an artist. She's sort of non-compromising. She goes, I don't want to be mediocre. I want to be a good artist. And she goes to Europe. She tests herself. She realizes Hey, I'm not that good. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be, you know, but she's constantly tested and she, she comes through every time. And there's that scene where she's sent to Aunt March's house when, when Beth is ill and they mm-hmm. quarantine her with scarlet fever. And that's the beginning of her, of her change where she, she's facing the possibility of losing her sister. And she wants, she gets the ring. I think there's a ring that she, that she gets that, uh, either her aunt gives her, but she, she, oh no, Estelle, the maid gives her. She, she uses this as a reminder not to be selfish because remember in the beginning of the book, she's very selfish. She wants the, very. the art supplies and then the, the limes, she buys the limes and she's very self-centered, which you're allowed to be. Like I said, one to 30, you're allowed to be a, a more on a self-centered narcissist. So, but you know, but then she grows out of that and she makes a resolve to be a better person. And in the backdrop of Joe's struggle to be a writer and her, and her, you know, everything that Joe goes through, there's Amy going along and becoming a person. And at the end, she's, she's a lovely, she's a lovely woman. And I understand why Lurie loves her, but I, I'm still a little bothered by, you know, wait a minute, Joe's the love of your life. And, and frankly, should Joe and Lurie have gotten married? I mean, what do you think? Probably not. I don't think to me, yeah. Lurie would have been threatened by Joe. Like Joe was too much for him. She, he thought he loved, like, here's the thing. So I have, a, I have a lot of friends that we're all kind of like these, like alpha, you know, my friend describes <laughs> it as like alpha women and that you have to have a man who can like, who can love an alpha what? woman because you love us. Yeah. You think it's cute and quirky and fun when we're 20, but when we're 60, we're still alphas and we're still like going strong and you don't think it's so cute anymore. And I think that's Lori. Oh, and you're going to get stronger. You're going to get stronger. Yeah. <laughs> like, brace yeah, like Lori, Lori couldn't handle that. He couldn't have kept up with Joe. Like she needed, she needed somebody who could just like almost. And I think Lori, there can only be one star and Lori likes to be a star. And whether Joe admits it or not, she has to be a star. She's the star. So yes. I think that's the other yes. thing. Whereas Amy, but yeah, I'm with you though that Lori just transferred everything. So I will say you have redeemed Amy in my eyes, and now I a hundred percent. I already wanted to read this book, but now I really want to read this book and see oh, Amy you. how you see Amy. But Lori will always yes. be dead to me. He's uh, no, he just, <laughs> like he only brought all he brought was his like his grandfather's money. Like what else did he do? Like oh, come I, on, know. Lori. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. I- I know. And one of the things that always struck me too are the are the gender bender names. I mean, Louise May yeah. Alcott, Joe, and then Laurie. I mean, Laurie. I mean, why did you do yeah. that? That raises other questions. But and, and so again, to get back to Blame It on the Brontes, which is which is, you know, actually has a title. The second book doesn't have a title yet. But um again, it's 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 these people's lives going through the context of of of, of, liter- of, of literature. And I just I love, I love the fact that I get to do this and that there was an yeah. audience for it. And, and, and one of the things that I was very gratified by the, uh, the readers and the uh, literary agents at uh, Folio that read blame it on the Brontes. There were, 
women in their twenties. I mean, I, and I thought, and I was afraid I would, I, I wouldn't, my character, she's like 32, she's a little older. And her problem is, you know, I was afraid I wouldn't quite capture a younger readership or that mm-hmm. the literary stuff would just turn them off. They wouldn't relate to it. But the enthusi- enthusiasm, the exclamation points were, were just <laughs> like, oh, it was a wonderful surprise. And, and I'm so grateful to them. And uh, I, I'm just feeling very hopeful. And, 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 and I love that. I love the fact that, and that was sort of my point. I mean, a book like yeah. Woodland Heights still resonates for everybody. For, you it know, these, these young women, they love it. They love it. And, you know, well, and, now I'll be, and now I'll be curious to see Heathcliff through your eyes because he's another one that I'm not feeling him. So I'll be interested to see how you did that. Yes, well, <laughs> one of the things that, that, that my editor, Alex really helped me do, she said, Annie, you need to, you need to have, you need to show like this, what is happening? How is this book? I had to put more Bronte references in. I, mm-hmm. It was in my head, but I wasn't showing it on the page. So how I framed that is I have Athena, my main character, reread Wuthering Heights through the, through the, through the, 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 the through the novel itself, through the action of the, the present novel. Mm-hmm. And she, her reading of it changes. She evolves. She, as she, she sees it in a new light, which is, I think, a mark of great literature. You go back mm-hmm. to it constantly and you get new things out of it every time. Every time you read it, you get something different. So she's re-examining this book now from the perspective of someone who has lost the love of her life and who has made a bargain with imagination that hasn't quite fulfilled her dreams and expectations. So she, so my friend, and that was genius on Alex's part because all of a sudden I realized, yes. So I have her go through the novel and there's scenes where, you know, snippets where she's rereading it. She's reevaluating Heathcliff. And say, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> I mean, this guy's a monster. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I still love him. I think, I think, I think because he, like I said, he's elemental and he is love in its rawest form. I mean, he wants Catherine to haunt him. And I mean, you know, I want to be haunting my husband when I'm dead. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, right. like, it's like, does it get any better than that? So yeah. basically, so yeah, so I forget what your question was because I'm so excited about talking about literature. But I, so yeah, anyway, so, so I brought The Wuthering Heights into that by having her reread it. Oh, I know what you're asking me. Did I rethink Heathcliff? Yeah. 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 Yes. Well, I have my character reevaluate him. And, and, but he can go. He can go on in the pages of a book, being Heathcliff and spitting and killing baby birds or whatever that horrible thing he does. But Athena could go on and still love uh, Thorn, her lover, mm-hmm. and, and 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 she could have the best of both. I mean, you know, we, one it, one does not have to be without the other. We could have our happy ending with a little reason and imagination. So that's amazing. Well, I. I'm so excited to read all these books. So is Helen Troy, Illinois, that one's out now. Like we could find that one right now, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, Where would we find that? Is that one available oh, at back. bookstores? <laughs> well, it's on Amazon, of course. Amazon. Amazon. Okay. Helen and you can Troy, always, Illinois. you guys, you can always go to your local bookstore and ask them and they will order it for you. Same with your oh. library if you want to get it from nice. your library. So always yes. good. And then these other books. So you've got, okay, I'm going to have to read it because I don't want to mess it up. So we've got okay. Blame It on the Brontes. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, you're fine. Blame It on the Brontes is coming out May 3rd, 2022. And then yes. The Little Women is going to come out in 2023. So where can yeah, everybody can. follow you, Annie? Where can they follow you so they can keep up with all this? But Okay. I have a website, AnnieSereno.com. And it has all my social links. Perfect. And, and I write a blog. I have a blog. I mean, I don't publish it. I'm not a blogger the way you are. I have about 50 essays in there in which I 
three, 300 to 500 word essays where I explore things. Uh, I wrote one about the annual bacon festival in Des Moines, Iowa. <laughs> and All I wrote right. one about why I have 35 pairs of shoes. I'm not sure I can justify that. So <laughs> I do have a blog. So that's also on the website. And as I say, that's on your website too. So we can read about bacon yeah. and shoes over there. Everything. everything awesome well this has been so much fun it has been very enthusiastic I've had so much fun I'm sorry for people who are listening that we kind of talked over each other but we were both very excited to make our points and so I I will do my best in editing to fix that but it just is what it is this is just this is who we are today but thank you so much Annie for coming on and telling us all about all your stuff and and for making me sound smart, I'm I'm putting oh, that on my are. business card. You are, that, you're, you're an ethnographer. <laughs> you're an anthropologist of modern suburbia. <laughs> that's right. I'm going to put that on my business card. Look out. Forget about Irma Bombeck. I'm, you know, PhD. I'm looking forward to your next book, Midlife Bites. And, and if, oh, you need, thank you. if you need to call me at two in the morning, say, Annie, I'm having a midlife crisis. I'll, I'll be happy to, you know, talk you through it. Thank you. We need those friends. <laughs> Don't be careful. I will. So, (laughs) all right. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon, Annie. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening and subscribing to No Pants Required with Jen Mann. Don't forget to follow me on social media and subscribe to my newsletter at jenmanwrites.com. My newest book, Midlife Bites, Anyone Else Falling Apart or Is It Just Me? is available now everywhere books are sold. So please get a copy, read it. Tell me what you think. I'm so excited to share this book with you.